0: Ayer un caracol, un caracol, un caracol, un caracol de guerra.
1: Hello and welcome to the Zapatista podcast,
2: lessons and stories from Chiapas. This podcast is brought to you by the Galway Feminist Collective and Prometheus, Mexico. This podcast series gives a general introduction to the Zapatista movement of Mexico to those not so familiar with their struggle in the light of their first European tour this summer 2021.
1: We want to give folks in Ireland and Europe an insight into the Zapatistas through interviews with some of those who have worked closely with movement. A quarter of a century on, after the Zapatista uprising of 1994, we want to retrace some of the steps that their struggle has taken on its long and steady road to autonomy, sharing their learnings and obstacles, but above all, their determination and creativity to make other worlds a reality.
2: The Zapatistas are a Mexican revolutionary indigenous movement that govern many autonomous zones over an extensive region within Chiapas, the southernmost state of Mexico. The Zapatistas don't like to be pigeonholed, but they are most certainly anti-capitalist and anti patriarchal Some say they are libertarian socialists, that they have anarchists and communists, Catholics and atheists among them. They practice direct democracy and traditional indigenous ways of organising. On January 1st, 1994, The day NAFTA came into effect, which is the North American Free Trade Agreement signed by the US, Mexico and Canada, Zapatista women and men led an uprising to halt the ever-increasing death grip of colonialism and its legacy, which has been centuries of poverty and inequality, racism and exploitation. Following the uprising and broken accords by the Mexican government, Zapatistas turned to creating their own autonomy and practicing self-determination.
3: This summer 2021, a delegation of Zapatistas and representatives from various indigenous groups in Mexico are traveling in Europe as part of a world tour. Their European tour coincides with the 500-year anniversary of the fall of Tenochtitlan, present-day Mexico City. From July to October, the delegation is meeting with activists throughout Europe. The meetings are meant to horizontally strengthen and multiply the resistances in each place. Once again, the Zapatistas will appeal to our creative consciousness, to see past the reality that Europe and the minority world live, and to open our eyes to how the majority world survives. The first Zapatista representatives have already disembarked in Spain. Among them, a transgendered woman is helping unfold a massive campaign, urging Europe to wake up to a new dawn and to create other worlds together, beyond capitalism.
1: Hello, I'm Nancy Serrano. Welcome to the Zapatista podcast, stories and lessons from Chiapas. Let's begin this episode on autonomy with the story of the Ceiba Tree, written by Subcomandante Marcos in his book, The Other Stories.
4: The story of the Ceiba Tree. According to our ancestors, Our belief is that in nature, in the earth, in the trees and in the streams lies the story of women and men. Not only the story that has taken place, but the one that will occur. And our elders tell us that when the gods made the world, there was chaos and things were unfinished. The world was not as it should have been, That's how it was. Women and men lived and worked as equals. No one ruled and no one obeyed, and everything was decided collectively. They said that a time would come when someone would come from afar and want to conquer and destroy these lands. So, it was necessary for native peoples of these lands before the existence of all other nations to have memory So the gods gave them a tree. The sacred tree for the Mayans is the Ceiba, the tree that holds the world above its head and that keeps the earth from falling with its roots. And the gods said, this is the tree of remembrance. When the conquerors arrived, the Spanish conquistadors realised that they could not defeat the indigenous people who were defending their territory that would later become Mexico. And they were getting their strength from that tree, from La Ceiba, from the Tree of Remembrance. So the Spanish wanted to destroy it and burn it and set it on fire. But the rain put out the fire and they could not destroy it. They then realized that to destroy it, they had to cut it down. They brought their axes, their spears and their swords and they began to cut down the Saba until they knocked it to the ground. And then they chopped it into splinters until there was nothing left. Then a very strong wind came lifting all the branches, leaves and splinters and spread them to the people throughout all of Mexico. And our ancestors say those splinters began germinating again, that the job of the indigenous peoples of Mexico is to preserve the memory so that this country never forgets its roots.
1: Brothers and sisters, we have invited you to this meeting to seek four and five find yourselves and us Zapatistas. you have Zapatistas. all touched our hearts Zapatistas. Zapatistas. and you can see we are not special you can see we are simple and ordinary men and women Nameless. you can see we are the rebellious, rebellious mirror that wants to be a pain glass and break you can see we are who we are so we can stop being, so we are to become the you, who we are. We are the Zapatistas.
4: Zapatistas.
1: In this first episode of our podcast series, I speak with Alejandro from Radio Zapatista, who has been reporting on the Zapatista movement since 2005. This episode will introduce the listener to the vibrant history of the movement and its long and steady journey to autonomy. Alejandro speaks about the early days of the revolution, the many setbacks, the violence from the Mexican government, and how the Zapatistas have adapted their strategy time and time again. He talks about the Zapatista European tour and what it really signifies in the middle of a pandemic, and what lessons we can take away to create our own autonomous spaces. Well, we're talking today with Alejandro from Radio Zapatista, so welcome, Alejandro, to our podcast.
0: Thank you. It's very good to be here with you.
1: I wanted to ask you first about um, what your, your first encounters were like with the Zapatista movement and what were those first impressions?
0: Well, like most Mexicans, were, our first contact with the Zapatistas was, was on January 1st, 1994, when they uh, declared war on the Mexican government. But I didn't get involved until much later in 2005, when they published the uh, Sixth Declaration of the the Lacandon Jungle. And in that declaration, one of the things that they said is that their intention was to create an international movement. It's always been their intention not to limit their struggle only to Chiapas, only to Mexico, but to go beyond. But the proposal of the Sixth Declaration is very interesting. And there was an open invitation to go to the jungle to uh, initiate some meetings to try to figure out how to go about creating an international movement. And so I went down to the jungle and I was impressed. I had never been in Zapatista territory. I was incredibly impressed by the way they interacted, by the entire environment, what uh, Zapatista community is like. And also by the proposal of the Sixth Declaration, And the next year, they began what they called the other campaign when Subcomandante Marcos, at the time they called him Delegate Zero, he traveled throughout the entire country in Mexico with meetings with people that were not necessarily massive meetings, but were meetings with all sorts of people in, in struggle. And the idea was to listen to each other and to find the commonality in diversity. And we're talking about meetings where you might find indigenous people together with housewives and uh, uh, sex workers and uh, factory workers and, you know, peasants and people who would never encounter each other, would never meet each other, you know, anarcho-punks, young kids, you know. And yet they're in the meeting, they're finding the commonality of the same oppressive system and also sharing the ways that they resist that. So that was the idea of the other campaign. It was fabulous. It, was, it lasted practically all year. At that time, we started, we started broadcasting on radio, on Pacifica Radio in Berkeley. In uh, a small program we had that was called Radio Zapatista. And there was half an hour per month. Uh, it was very, very little. When the other campaign started, we pushed very hard to get more airspace. And we managed to get uh, considerably more airspace. And then we went on a motorcycle trip, two of us on a motorcycle trip throughout the entire country, following the places with the other campaign and the places where the other campaign would be going and reporting for Pacifica Radio. And this was an incredible experience because it was meeting, it was seeing my country through an entirely different lens. You know, the lens of resistance, the lens of struggle. Uh, From that experience and from our reports, we decided that we had to create a collective but then we started uh also building the website and eventually uh, as years passed we moved into mexico uh some of us many of them left today i'm the only one that remains from the from that first group of uh the founders we don't broadcast uh anymore on on radio our platform is the website and and social media we produce programs that other radio stations in Mexico and in the world might reproduce. Also, we've concentrated a lot in the last years on creating a historical archive on everything that Zapatistas do. And so in the last uh, maybe eight years, you can go into our website and find all the audios of everything that was said in every encounter that the that the Zapatistas have done in the last few years. One of the proposals of this declaration is that is to create spaces of autonomy all over the all over the place all over the world, and then to link them together. And we figured that our job as communicators was to provide avenues for those links, you know, between different struggles. And so that's what we've been concentrating on for now fifteen years of existence.
1: Wow, that's um. That's quite a project you've been involved in over the years. It's um, amazing that you've managed to put such a great historical audio archive as such together. So we'll definitely be including that in our our episode show notes so folks can um, access all that um, historical information um, and obviously present programs that you're still producing. So, yeah, you've definitely seen, well, apart from doing that thorough trip around Mexico, Following um, the other campaign, you've obviously at first hand experienced different parts of the Zapatista movement in their territories and around Mexico. I was wondering, could you give us a little uh, historical context if we go back to the Zapatista uprising and how and why this movement came about? Obviously, the outward face was the uprising in 94 to the world, but that had a prior beginning as such.
0: That's right. And, and that's, a, that's a story that is fascinating and that we don't know too much about other than what they have told us. And, um, but we do know that on the 17th of November of 1983, six people arrived in the jungle, in the mountains of uh, Chiapas. And those six people founded the Zapatista Army of National Liberation. And so the process of going from six people to thousands, of an army of many thousands that declared war and attacked seven cities simultaneously on the on January first, nineteen ninety four, those ten years are fascinating. And what they've told us is they they did this job little by little, you know, an ant's work of going to the communities and having contact with the people, disguised as. Pre- teachers, as engineers, as what have you, and little by little, talking to select people that they thought were more receptive, and beginning to have a more political talk, until finally they were sufficiently confident to tell them what was going on. And that person then would become part of the movement, and then that person would talk to his family or her family, and Little by little, this started to grow. Now, one of the things that was very interesting is that the first, the original six people that went there, you know, they were guerrillas in the traditional form, gabaristas, you know, the idea that there you have a vanguard that will illustrate the people, you know, and that will be uh, what moves the people, you know, behind the band, the vanguard. And what happened during those years, the, the indigenous people they were talking to weren't into that. They weren't really eager to be driven by anyone. And the Zapatistas were very intelligent in in being able to listen to that and not ignore that. It's a long process, and and, like I said, we don't really have the details of how that happened, but we know that throughout those 10 years there was a metamorphosis, right? And this idea of an armed uh, movement and the indigenous form of organizing, which is horizontal which is participative which is through assemblies and these two things started fusing together and so by the time that they they rose up in 94 this was a hybrid movement and it was a profoundly indigenous movement and that makes it very unique in the history of guerrilla movements in the world
1: and could you tell us just in brief because i know it's again it's a, it's a a big story and there's lots of history What were like the the main, I suppose, social and economic reasons why these indigenous groups do take up, well, join this movement?
0: Chiapas is the poorest state in the country and the country that has the, the largest number of indigenous people. The state, I'm sorry. It was a state that was entirely abandoned by the government. There was no investment, there was no roads, there was no communication, there was no infrastructure. And the indigenous people were living under neo-slavery conditions, you know. You had large latifundia, large landed estates owned by very powerful people uh, linked to the uh, the political elite. And the indigenous people were workers living under conditions very similar to slavery and uh, exploited tremendous racism here in the city of San Cristobal. Indigenous people had to step down from the sidewalk when a white person would be walking because the sidewalks are very 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 small. There this uh... and so this kind of racism, the mockery, the lack of dignity with which they were treated, was terrible. And they were tired of that. They were tired of the derecho de pernada. I don't know how to say that in English. The right of the boss to have sex with the woman before she gets married. Right. When a girl, a woman is going to be married, he has a right to deflower her. And so these kinds of things that were common, uh, indigenous people were very tired of that. And when the Zapatistas, when that small group of people arrives and says, we know how to fight and we can work with you towards an armed movement. And they said, yeah, we've had enough. We can't handle this anymore. We've tried every possible means peacefully and we don't get anywhere. And so for them, there was no alternative for a life with dignity, but to go up in arms.
1: Yeah, I've heard that right up to the end of the 80s, yeah, people were having to step off the sidewalk to let the the white colonialists go by as such your descendants. And prima nocta, I think, is the term that people here would probably associate with medieval times in terms of the right to the first night with the bride. That definitely brings a a focus on how terrible the situation was. And so, well, then what happens in, in January ninety four when, when the uprising takes place? What happens in the immediate aftermath of this uprising, like in terms of how the government reacts, how the civil society react to this uprising?
0: Well, uh, the Zapatistas come up with the Declaration of the Lacandon Jungle, it's the first declaration. And in that declaration, it's a very short um, document that says... We've had enough, we've taken up arms, and we're going to march towards Mexico City and uh, knock down the government and declare war on the Mexican army. And the reaction, of course, is a brutal attack from the Mexican army, and they uh, begin bombarding the communities. I've heard stories here in San Cristobal of truckloads of the dead being dumped into communal graves and so on. A brutal war, and... It's important also to understand the context. January 1st, 1994 was the first day that the North American Free Trade Agreement with, with the U.S. and Canada came into effect. At that time, right before the uprising, the middle classes were celebrating the presumed entry of Mexico into the first world uh, through this agreement. And of course, this uh, free trade agreement was certainly not going to benefit the masses of Mexican people, right? But it was very important for the government to maintain an image of civilization and peace and progress and modernity. And so to have a guerrilla movement, an indigenous guerrilla movement, declaring war on the government exactly at that moment was really uh, not very welcome by the government. And so the attack was brutal. And the reaction of the Mexican people was really interesting, because there was, a, there was a very strong attempt to say, these are foreigners who are manipulating indigenous people, you know, with the argument that indigenous people aren't capable of doing anything by themselves, uh, you know, through a very entrenched racism that we have in Mexican society. And despite of all of this, the Mexican people rose up and said, enough, we don't want this war. And the Zócalo, which is the second largest plaza in the world, second to to Moscow, was entirely full of people demanding an end to the war. But at the same time, they did not take up arms. The Mexican people said, no, we don't want this massacre going on by the Mexican army. We agree with the demands of the Zapatistas, but nobody took up arms. Uh, and, And this forced a ceasefire on the 12th day. This was a war that lasted only 12 days right? The government said, okay, it was too much of too much pressure exactly at the moment when they wanted to show an image of civilization to the world. And so they couldn't keep this, this massacre going on. They had to stop. But after that, the Zapatistas had a very interesting dilemma. They had been preparing for war for 10 years. And all of a sudden, the Mexican people said, we don't want war. We agree with you, but we don't want war. And again, just like when they encountered the resistance of indigenous people who said, we want what you have to show us, but we don't want to be led. They were also able to listen to the Mexican people. And so they changed strategies, you know, after preparing for 10 years, in 12 days, they changed strategies and they decided to go for the word and the dialogue, dialogue, not only with the Mexican government, because then we begin a process of negotiations with the government and peace negotiations, but especially with The Mexican society and a number of fascinating uh, initiatives take place where they begin to establish very active contacts with uh, Mexican society. One such event was the the National Democratic Conference in the Lacandon Jungle, in rebel territory. With what that means, I mean you're, you're inviting hundreds of people to the armed territory with all the security issues that that implies. And they built this huge ship-like structure where they received people to begin to debate the, the necessary changes in, in, in Mexico. When the negotiations begin, the first issue that was going to be dealt with in the negotiations with the government was indigenous rights for all indigenous people in the country, not only for Zapatistas. And Zapatistas said, well, we're not all indigenous people in the country. We're Mayan indigenous people in Chiapas. And so we need to be able to talk to other indigenous people in the country. And this was the beginning of what uh, not much later became the National Indigenous Congress, which is a network of indigenous peoples throughout the country which is still alive today and and very much linked to the zapatistas.
1: Well, yeah they they I think from the beginning, as you mentioned the the date they pick with NAFTA from the very beginning they they choose very symbolic and well appropriate moments to make their their appearance as such for obvious reasons. And I think you, you can see there in what you tell us that their versatility and their ability to actively listen as they have always, well, as they've always said, you know, to, to listen as opposed to lead the way. They're They're listening and incorporating civil society's opinions the whole way from the beginning of their movement. So, well, in this sharp change of plan that begins in this moment, when, when, does they, when do they decide as such to opt for an autonomy process or was this always their intention?
0: Autonomy was always part of the, of the Zapatista project. In the 90s, they created the autonomous municipalities. They traced uh, municipalities that did not correspond to official municipalities because official municipalities do not respect the uh, ethnic composition of indigenous groups. We have a number of different uh, Mayan uh, indigenous groups, and non-Mayan, like the Choles, no? Autonomy was already present from the very beginning. But the, negoc- the peace negotiations, uh, like I said, the first topic that was going to be spoken about was indigenous people's rights, the negotiations for the, the uh, peace accords, the, called the San Andres Accords. After long negotiation process, the San Andres Accords were signed by both the Zapatistas and the Mexican government. What those accords say is that indigenous people throughout the country have the right to their own form of self-government and the right to control the natural resources present in their territories. So this is a very important, dramatic change in Mexican legislation to allow, constitutionally allow, a government's autonomy in terms of self-government for indigenous people according to their traditional customs. But the Mexican government signed that and did not put into effect the constitutional changes that were required for it to come into effect. So they, they did it without any intention of ever complying with it, of course, because indigenous people are in territories that are very rich in natural resources, and the government was not going to allow indigenous people to have control over them. And so the Zapatistas, from 96 to 2001, they did a number of very, very powerful initiatives to try to force the Mexican government to comply with them. Among them, for example, they did a a, um, a consultation throughout the entire country, right? Asking the Mexican people, do you agree or not with the necessity of putting into effect the, uh, the San Andres Accords? And so they do all of these initiatives. They end up with a huge initiative on 2001, when thousands of people leave Chiapas and go through thirteen different uh, states in, in, in the country in going around in the form of a, of a caracol of a snail and get to Mexico City, about a million people were mobilized throughout all of this trajectory, and in Mexico City, they forced the the Congress to open the doors to mass guerrillas to go in there and speak at the National Congress and say why it is fundamental that these accords are put into place.
1: So the consultations brought out that the civil society were in, in agreement with the accords?
0: Yes, massively in agreement. When they go into the Congress, you know, the thought was that this was such a massive moment and there was such massive support for this that, that they would react. All three political parties, there were three political important political parties at the time, including the supposedly left-leaning political party, they all betray the agreements and put into place a constitutional uh, reform that really, in fact, does not give autonomy to indigenous people, of self-government, control of the natural resources. And so after this point, the Zapatistas make a decision, we will no longer speak to the, to the government, right? And this is the moment where radical autonomy as a project begins, Right? So there was already, of course, a very strong autonomous project, but still in dialogue with the, with the government. At this point, there is a, a profound rupture. And this autonomy means that we will do self-government, that we will break all ties with the national government, with the state, and all ties also with capital. Right? Autonomy means being autonomous from both uh, the logic of capital, because this is an anti-capitalist movement, and the logic of the state. And so they shut down, they don't speak for two years, and it's a moment where they're reconstructing and redefining paths. Two years later, in 2003, they inaugurate the caracoles. The caracoles are these physical spaces, large spaces, where the autonomous government lives. They divide the, the territory in five large zones, each of them with a caracol, and each of them with a good government council, which is the autonomous government composed of 20, 30 people, horizontally, who receive no salary, who in fact, the only thing that they receive is the a, is a, is a transportation from their community to the Caracol, where they will be the authorities, right? And um, they even pay for their own food. And so... And they established a form of government according to seven principles, what they call the seven principles of mandar obedeciendo, to command by obeying. It is a fascinating and unique experiment in direct democracy that I think this is one of the greatest contributions of the Zapatista movement to the world because we are accustomed to hearing you know, that it's imperfect, but that it's the best possible uh, arrangement what we have with this representative democracy, right, in the liberal state. And what the Zapatistas are saying is, no, there are other ways of doing it, and we're going to do it in practice. We're not going to tell you about it. We're going to do it, right? And so they establish self-government. They establish, they create an entire educational system, an autonomous educational system. How do you do that when most of the people in the communities do not even know how to read and write? And this is an autonomous educational system by themselves, And they begin by assemblies in the communities talking to the people, what is it that we want our children to learn? And then how are we going to do it? And they start building schools. And right now there are schools in all communities, autonomous schools that are entirely separate from the the institutional education of the state. The same thing with health. People were dying, children died of, of entirely curable diseases because there are no clinics. When there are clinics, there are no doctors. When there are doctors, there are no medicine. And when there are All of the above, they are treated like if they were animals because they're indigenous people. And so they decided we're going to build our own health system. And they have now clinics in every community and they have hospitals at the zone level and so on. And they have transportation and they have communications. They have their own radios. They have a whole economic system, production through cooperatives and so on. And so what they're doing is they're doing it for themselves, but they're also doing it as a lesson to the world we can have a different way. It is possible to get away from what they tell us that is the only way possible.
1: Yeah, and obviously it's been a, a slow process and that's why they, they shut down in certain years and just do their internal work when they have to. Well, in terms of like their, their autonomy and their autonomous project, do you think you could possibly compare how, how it compares to some other autonomous projects that you, you might be aware of?
0: I think one of the largest in worldwide, one of the largest uh, examples, probably the most akin to the Zapatistas, even though the forms are entirely different, are the Kurds, the Kurd autonomous movement, which is huge. But there are many very interesting examples here in in, in Mexico, for example, we have the the case of uh, Cheran, which is in Michoacan. What they have, they were having confrontations with organized crime which was destroying their forest. They were having confrontations with the police, with the, the army, who are usually, you know, related to organized crime. And they got tired of it, and they said, enough. And they armed themselves, and they said, here in this territory, there is no organized crime, no police, no army, no political parties, and we have our own self-government, and they're very strongly armed. They have a very, uh, you know, a very potent community police. And so that is one of the perhaps most radical examples of non-Zapatista, even though they are friendly with the Zapatistas, There is a case of Tila here in Chiapas, which is a community who's just been, it's a Nejido, it's a number of communities together who have been fighting for their territory for many years. It's a place, it's a region that was paramilitarized in the 90s against the Zapatistas, so there is a tremendous amount of paramilitary activity, uh, horrendous murders and disappearances and so on. It's a very difficult region. And the paramilitaries, of course, linked with the structures of the government, and they uh, eventually they took their case all the way to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court wasn't resolving anything. And they said, we've had enough of this. And they simply destroyed the, the building that housed the government and kicked out, kicked out the government, kicked out the police. And now they have their own self-government and they're managing their whole ejido with a lot of difficulties and facing a lot of pressure. But they're there. And you go from there and you have, I have a lot of contact with Brazil and in Brazil, there are many different smaller experiments in autonomy in the peripheries, in the favelas, where things are very, very difficult in creating spaces of autonomy. The The black movement, you know, with a very radical position of creating their own education educational spaces, their own uh, spaces for self-protection and struggle in very radical ways. And the idea that the Zapatistas have been pr- promoting is... Autonomy has to be done in your way. This is what we're doing, but everybody has to do it their own way. I was talking to a Chicano friend uh, in Los Angeles, and they started occupying housing, right? Because with the pandemic, a lot of people have been evicted, but there's a lot of people without a house and, and three times as many empty houses. And so they started simply occupying houses and facing the police and creating a space of occupied houses where they can build autonomy and resistance. So this is happening all over the world in in, in many, many, many different forms.
1: That's true. Now that you mention the housing, I suppose the the autonomy of, well, there's lots of flavors of autonomy, like you're saying there, um, and the Zapatistas is very strongly linked to the the territories that they recovered during the, the initial war. So that made their type of autonomy quite possible. But this occupying um, housing in urban areas is probably a closer example to things that people in, in Europe might be aware of. I know there'd be different examples in Holland, in Spain, in Britain, but um, it has different different difficulties because of different laws in, in all the countries. So autonomy has lots of different flavors. And Could you describe what you see as the main differences between what I suppose, the Zapatistas are seeing as autonomy and what independence in, in general terms is, is seen, perhaps, by most people.
0: From the beginning, the Zapatistas made a very clear distinction. They, they, um, one, of the things, one of the first things that the government tried to do was to say that these are foreigners who are separatists and therefore a threat to the Mexican sovereignty. And they were very emphatic from the beginning Uh, We are not separatists. What we're reclaiming is our right to be part of this nation as indigenous people. Throughout Mexican history, there has been a very strong effort towards leveling, right? It's the Nación Mestiza, the mestizo nation. And so everybody is the same. And they're saying we're not the same, we're different, but we're Mexican. And we vindicate the right to be Mexican as different independence which i guess could be linked to separatism is to create a separate state like catalunya right like many movements trying to separate from the state they're they're not saying that they're saying we want to we want to be within the nation but we want to be autonomous autonomous from the state and it's a very sometimes hard distinction to make they are they vindicate the nation as an identity but not the state as a political formation which are very different things. And opposed to the state, they say, we don't believe in the state. The state was born as an oppressive mechanism. We believe in direct democracy and we're going to show how we're doing it.
1: Yeah, no, I I find this fascinating because when I first, um, well, saw some Zapatista events, I was like, they have their Zapatista flag and then they put up the Mexican flag as well. And to me, I can understand it at a certain level, But yeah, that explanation helps because it's a bit like, oh my God, I thought they're against the Mexican government. Because for me, flags, for me, I I tend to associate flags very much with what the government represents. But I, I like the fact that they're holding onto their identities and cultures and the whole mix that's all over Mexico in so many ways. And they can claim that back and throw out the parts that aren't working for them as the government and capitalism, etc. I think it's a really good distinction and a a different way to view identities and not let the government decide what your nation is as such, you know?
0: Yeah, and I think it's also a, a way of challenging common notions of what the nation means because the state has always attempted to create a homogeneous idea of what the nation is and a homogeneous identity. And what the Zapatistas have have been stressing is the politicization of difference, the wealth that difference means for a plural society. And and Mexico has been very clear, you know, uh, as of the Mexican Revolution, which was a very important change uh, in many ways, but one of the outcomes was this uh, idea that Mexico is a homogeneous place made of mestizos, right? And indigenous people contributed to, this, to our mixed blood, but they're now irrelevant. You know, that, that contribution is fine, but now go away because we're a mestizo nation, we're all the same. And what they're saying is, no, what is the wealth of a nation, what is the wealth of humanity is the difference. The difference with respect Difference with communication. The difference when I can see the other, and I can I can respect the other for what they are, without trying to force upon them uh, whatever notion I have, of what is correct, or what is not correct. So it's, it's a profoundly decolonial project.
1: Yeah, keeping keeping the diversity is their strength as such, as opposed to homogenizing everything about us identities, and we're all the same. So, yeah, that's. A super way to look at it we're almost uh, at the end here and I, I wanted to ask you about the well the, the european trip because this is the reason we're we're putting together these episodes um at this point in time so i wondered if you could tell us a little bit about why they've chosen to do this trip now their first trip to europe and yeah the different messages that they're they're coming to europe with
0: I think to understand it correctly, we need to understand a little bit of what their their, their um, reflection has been in the last few years. And they have been, since perhaps 2013, 2014, they have been uh, extremely insistent on the idea that we're undergoing a civilizational crisis of unprecedented magnitude, uh, which has to do with the natural resources, with the energetic resources. Has to do with the environmental crisis. It has to do with the the surge of uncontrolled violence, the profound uh, relationship between the states and organized crime, and so on and so forth. And the, what they're seeing is that that we are undergoing a process that might lead to a collapse of civilization worldwide. And this has been analyzed in many, many uh, different uh, events on critical thought that they have organized with thinkers uh, from all over the world. These last few years have been full of encounters, and if our listeners want to to read about that, you can go into an art in a red there is a section on on Zapatista encounters, and there's a tremendous amount of thought behind this. And of course, as indigenous people, they feel it directly because the territories occupied by indigenous people are the most disputed by capitalism in this phase where we're facing these kinds of shortages of of resources. And so it is in that context that they uh, come up with this incredible initiative, incredible in the sense that it is enormous, The idea that it is not enough for uh, their struggle to be a local struggle in Chiapas or even a national struggle in Mexico. that if there's not a worldwide movement of people creating different alternatives, different forms of, of living, different forms of relating to each other, different forms of socializing, we're going to collapse. And if we collapse and we don't have alternatives ready, we haven't dreamed of alternatives possible, once this collapses, we will not be able to build anything from the ruins of our civilization. And so what they're attempting to do is, is the idea to go to Europe is to establish contacts with all the movements in Europe that are resisting this madness uh, that we're living and begin creating these links. First of all, promote the creation of those links within Europe themselves, because there are many struggles, but there are many struggles that usually stay within their own bubbles of what they're doing, right? If you're, if you're working against against uh, certain development projects, uh, well, you can focus on that. And so what's missing is the linkage between them, and the linkage between them in Europe and the linkage between them throughout the world. And the Zapatistas have an ability to to create this kind of movement, you know, to to motivate and 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 we've seen it happen in Europe. They've been preparing for months. And, and that preparation has forced all sorts of uh, social movements to come in contact with each other to be able to organize for this. And that itself is already uh, stimulating this kind of organization. But then there's also a very symbolic uh, uh, aspect of this. Why Europe and why now?
1: In the middle of a pandemic.
0: <laughs> <laughs> in the middle of a pandemic. And the pandemic, they see it as... Uh, a symptom, and they see it, and we, many of us, see it as a symptom of what is happening in the world. It is not an isolated matter. Uh, there are many explanations for where it came from, and we're not going to get into that. But mm-hmm. the the fact that there is a pandemic of such dimensions has to do. Per- precisely with this analysis of the world crisis that we're into. And it is an announcement of what is to come. And what is to come is probably going to be much worse than what we've been living through this this pandemic in many ways. And we don't know in which way. But this is where we're heading. And so we're not going to stop because there is a pandemic on the contrary, We have to move more and more and more because it's, it is urgent. You know, we're talking about the survival of humanity in our planet. But also there is a symbolism of... 500 years ago, Europeans came to Latin America, to, to the Americas, and on one hand, it was a genocide unprecedented in human history. The genocide of indigenous people, the genocide of African people, and, and you know, that's the foundation of the Americas. There was also a... a, a Fascinating civilization, a very rich civilization created from that invasion. But it is evident today, 500 years later, that that system is not working. It is from the colonization of the Americas that capitalism arose. It is that colonization that allowed the capitalization necessary for capitalism to arise. And obviously, today, that is not working. And from that genocide of indigenous people that came 500 years ago, There were remnants, very important remnants of what that mode, that other way of thinking, that other way of relating to the earth and to nature and to each other. And that is a seed that they're taking back now to Europe, not to demand a recompense or for revenge for what happened here, not at all, is to create ties of solidarity with people who are struggling in, in Europe and saying, this is what we are, and this is what we have, and this is the seed that we have maintained for 500 years, and here it is, and we want to show you what it is. Can you do something with it? Is it useful? Does it serve your purposes in, in your own struggles? Because we know that things in Europe are not easy either. That That is pretty much the, the idea, and the that kind of symbolism was very clear when they departed from here. We were, we were able to accompany... All of the process of departure from here, you know, from the creation of this huge ship in what they call the maritime training center in the middle of a mountain.
1: Sense of humor for that as well, I think.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's always been present, you know, um, the the humor in, in in the Zapatista movement, and and going from there, and, and seeing all the rituals and the profound rituals, you know, uh, in in one of the caracoles in the in the jungle with the ceiba, which is a very sacred tree and the fact that this departed from isla mujeres which is now a, a horrid place of of you know very superficial tourism very terrible tourism devastation of of the of, of a beautiful area you know has been entirely devastating the, the maya riviera but there is the temple of Ischel, the goddess of love right and it is from there that they depart On the very same day, the anniversary of the arrival of the conqueror that conquered Mayan territory. And they arrive at the same place where the caravel La Pinta arrived with the news of the discovery of the new continent. And so it is full of symbolism. They certainly didn't need to take a ship and go through all the trouble they did when they could fly, you know. Many of them are going to fly. Why would seven people have to do all of this? Well, this is very symbolic. And I think symbolism is just as important or more than the actual political initiatives in in terms of its significance in this moment of civilizational crisis. You know, it is a lesson that they're trying to teach us all. In the midst of this emergency, you know, we can imagine, we can conceive, we can dream of a different world, and we have to begin building it collectively now together.
1: They they definitely capture the allowing yourselves to dream with all these symbolisms, um, especially having been so closed up in this pandemic. Movements, I think, in Europe have been even more disconnected because we've all been stuck behind a screen. So it almost allows people to dream and go out and, and meet each other again and meet the Zapatistas. So we definitely look forward to them um, if they make it as far as Ireland. We're, we're fingers crossed. It looks like they, they might. <laughs> okay. And on that note, what do you think you could see as the, the main lessons that we'd like to kind of summarise for people in Ireland, people already engaged in in some sorts of campaigns or people who are just starting to question what is it that's working or not working in the times we live in? Do we want to go back to the normal world that we had? Or is it now a very opportune moment to really take a next step and dream with the Zapatistas? In terms of their autonomy, I suppose, which was the, the topic we were touching on here. Yeah, what, what would you see as the main lessons that we could take away?
0: Yeah, you know, I would say... An answer that has two sides. One of them is more of a philosophical side. They say, and they repeat one you know, over and over, another world is possible. And I think what they mean by that is another humanity is possible. And it is evident that, that we've, lost, we've lost our way as, a, as humanity. Here, the, in the Mayan people uh, say that everything has chulel. Chulel is the soul or the vital energy that animates everything, including inanimate objects, right? Everything has chulel. And when somebody is acting stupidly, when somebody is acting in, in 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 violent ways or ways that are not correct, they say that you've lost your chulel or that your chulel is incomplete. And that's how Mayans speak of, you know, you're not acting well, your chulel is, is not right, right. Your chulel is not complete. You can lose parts of your chulel. And I think what we've done as a humanity is we've lost our chulel, you know, we've lost parts of our chulel, and it is time to re re-chulelis, rechulelizarnos, <laughs> right? That's a tongue twister. To <laughs> yeah, how do you translate that? To recover your chulel, right? Our chulel, our collective chulel, right? To rehumanize ourselves. I think what they're showing us that it is possible to create a different humanity with different values with different purposes and this is what they've been trying to teach us over and over and over in all the many different initiatives which not only this this is this being the latest one but many different initiatives in the last few years that are incredibly fascinating from very potent encounters of art and they're saying that art is one of the main tools of, of being able to conceive a new world possible Right, And we're talking about events where you have maybe a thousand artists with 11 hours a day in 10 different spaces some simultaneously, all for free and all autonomous without any money from capital or from the state. You know, And they're saying it is possible. We can do something different and so i think that is the lesson for anybody for, for all of us who are who are seeing that we are going we're undergoing very very difficult moments as as a humanity you know in the world that it is possible to create something else but we need to begin to do it right now and the other side of the answer is they they're going to europe with their experience and they're saying this is what we've done this is how we do it nobody's intention to tell anybody what to do but It is possible to create spaces that do not fit the logic of capitalism, of uh, profit, of competition, of winning over the other and taking from the other so so you can enrich. You know, this whole logic of of capitalism is not necessary. It is possible to build something else. It is possible to build democracies that are truly democracies, where people actually do participate in decision-making on an everyday basis, where governors are there to serve the people and not to serve themselves. And so this example of a very hard, very difficult construction, you know, throughout all all of these years and recognizing all of the difficulties that they continue to face on a day-to-day basis. And even with those difficulties, even with paramilitaries, even with armed attacks, even with all of the pressure to be able to build this living alternative of a different world possible in this territory... The hope is that this will be able to become viral, right? A new form of virus that might attack all of humanity, which is the virus of regaining our collective chulel.
1: I like it. <laughs> the chulel virus. <laughs> <laughs> That's a, a a lovely a lovely way to end it. Um it's like the Zapatistas are are pulling back the curtain showing us the window, the a, a way to see onto another possibility with their, their examples, their, their hard earned examples that are not easy, but done a lot of um, work on their side. So now it's, it's up to us to start walking and, and working towards other possibilities. Well, that's, that's been great talking to you. And um, yeah, I've loads of thoughts spinning around in my head. So I think it's time to get cracking on another couple of projects and um, and keep talking with with folks and create new realities with all our neighbors and friends <laughs> well thank you very much and um, thanks for joining us Brazant.
3: Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find a list of related links and resources in our show notes for this episode. We'd love to hear your feedback. You can reach us at Galway Feminist Collective on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and also via our email address, goalwifeministcollective at gmail.com.